This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and want to hear more from us, just search Bearings on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click subscribe. Or visit us on bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. On today's show, I spoke with John Rotolo and David Jin about finding potentially uncorrelated income opportunities in the world of private equity and real assets. John is head of Bearings Private Equity Real Assets Group, part of Bearings Alternative Investments Platform. He and his team manage portfolios of asset-based investments across infrastructure, intangible assets, and natural resources with a focus on current income and capital appreciation. John co-founded one of Bearing's predecessor firms, Wood Creek Capital Management, in 2005, and he's worked in the industry since 1998. David is also part of Bearing's Private Equity Real Assets Group, where he's responsible for sourcing and underwriting pharmaceutical investments. Before joining the firm in 2017, he was Director of Corporate Development for Sorrento Therapeutics, and prior to that, he advised healthcare and pharmaceutical companies in a variety of investment banking and management consulting roles. You know, what jumped out at me from this discussion today was I thought it was really interesting how seemingly disparate asset classes from pharma royalties to music rights to patents or trademarks actually have some common characteristics, namely that they're all cash-flowing assets. And I found it fascinating to hear John and David talk about how investors are using these in diversified institutional portfolios today. All right, John, David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Great. I'm so happy that you guys are here today. Um, This is a really fascinating topic that we're going to be talking about today. So we're going to be talking about income opportunities in private markets and specifically within the private equity and real assets markets. And I thought maybe just to frame this up a little bit, it might be helpful for for you, John, to describe to us kind of what the assets are that we're actually talking about here and what roles they play in investor portfolios. And then after that, I'd like to bring David into the discussion and look at a specific example that is happening for bearings in real time today. So so maybe just to kick it off, John, I'll turn it over to you. Um, You know, when we think about private equity as an asset class, we're often thinking about capital appreciation, right? And your team certainly is seeking capital appreciation, but you guys are also seeking investments that generate income. So maybe help us understand the types of investments that your team is looking at and maybe some of the common characteristics across those assets. Sure. Uh, So it's quite a large investment universe that we're covering, but at the high level, there's really three legs to the stool, so to speak. Uh, Infrastructure investments. So those could be things like telecommunications assets, maybe a fiber optic network or a cell phone tower. They could be things like logistics and transportation assets. It could be commercial aviation, so an airplane, Mm -hmm. Um, or it could be something much simpler like a container that goes on a ship or on a railroad. Um, Intangible assets, which we're going to be talking about Mm -hmm. more today. So for our investment universe, that could be a whole number of types of intellectual property-based investments, music copyrights, film and television copyrights, patents. So in the pharmaceutical space, a lot of the time, the asset that we're investing into is a a patent. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the the third, like the stool, is natural resources. And for us, that includes 
water rights, things in the specialty timber space, okay. agriculture assets, and then metals and mining or mineral rights as well. Mm-hmm. And so those are the things that we invest into. You know, there's different ways that we can invest into those assets. The reason the group is called the private equity and real asset team is because we do have multiple ways which will invest into those assets. Mm. Across those different types of assets, there's a number of characteristics that we're looking for and that we tend to find common across the things that we invest in, in that universe. One of those things, as you said, is cash flow. And we like cash flow for a number of different reasons. It lets us distribute that cash flow out to investors. We can pay down debt. But more importantly, we can take that cash flow and pursue reinvestment opportunities when we want to drive an investment towards capital appreciation mm-hmm. and more of a private equity style as opposed to just pay that cash flow out and more of a real asset style. Right, right. Thank you for that overview. So it seems like quite a diverse group of investments that your group is making, but also one with some common characteristics. So if we turn to intangible assets specifically, um, this is such a maybe not that well understood part of the market, but one that seems to increase in size and importance almost on a daily basis. So maybe let's start with how you define what an intangible asset is uh, to begin with. Yeah, sure. So um, there's a number of different types of things, but very simply, it, it could be the legal right to a set of cash flows. So that could be a copyright, could be through a patent. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be through another type of contract. Maybe it's an insurance contract. Um, but in a in a world where we're increasingly services oriented economies, increasingly digitally oriented economies, more and more value exists in intangible assets, and um, we think it's a really important part of the private markets that's generally underinvested by institutional investors on a direct basis. Mm-hmm. And some examples would be music copyrights, patents. What are some of the others that jump out at you? So in the entertainment space, there are things like name and likeness rights. Mm-hmm. Um, there are book rights. In the pharmaceutical space, you have patents. In the technology space, you have patents. Um, and so it's sector by sector. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we really like about the space is those assets may exist in different parts of their life cycle. And so there are some opportunities that are lower risk, lower return. There are some opportunities that are higher risk, higher return. And that gives us diversification opportunities, but it also means that we can customize portfolios to deliver a risk return profile that an investor is seeking. Yeah, that's interesting. Is this something that you're seeing kind of broad-based investor interest in today? So I'm curious kind of what is investor participation look like in the intangible asset space, generally speaking? I think on a direct basis, it's still it's still fairly limited. There are pockets of the intellectual property and intangible asset space where investors have been investing in for the last 10 to 15 years. There was a period of time, for example, where there were several technology patent funds that were launched, that sort of has gone out of favor as um, patent laws changed. Currently, we do see a fair amount of interest in entertainment-based intellectual Mm -hmm. property. There's obviously been a a significant change in the distribution of media content from physical to digital. That's driving a lot of revenue growth for things like music in particular. So we see investors increasingly trying to find ways to access that. Um, But on a direct basis, I think probably the the most established or developed part of the the market for institutional investors has been um, in 
the pharmaceutical space and royalty and royalty-linked investments. There were several funds that were started in the early 2000s. We've seen different styles of investing in that space, and we have seen some of the large-end investors starting to build their own teams in-house and invest on a direct basis. Where are we seeing investors actually put allocations to these types of assets? Which buckets do they go in for them? It's interesting. I think it's changed through time. Um, When we started looking at these types of opportunities 15 years ago, investors were thinking maybe this would go in their absolute return portfolio. Maybe if an investor had an opportunistic bucket, it might fit in there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think as the institutional investment community has evolved, we've seen private equity participants. So I think there's capital coming out of private equity buckets. But with something like pharma royalties, I actually think the the cash flow characteristics, the shape of the returns probably look a lot like private credit. Mm -hmm. And I know that's a growing part of investors' portfolios. I would expect to see more interest coming from that part of investor portfolios as it becomes a more distinct part of their asset allocation. That's really interesting. I mean, that that's a kind of theme we hear over and over again as well as, as investors looking at illiquid asset classes, not only in private equity and real assets, but across the board into things like direct lending, real estate debt, et cetera. Um, I guess one of the common characteristics is these are income generating private assets. So that's that's interesting to hear where they're actually landing in portfolios. Let's turn to you, David, and go from the more theoretical side to a real-time example. And let's talk about what you're doing and what the team is doing in in the pharmaceutical royalty space. So let's start overall. Can you give us a basic explanation of what a pharmaceutical royalty is to begin with? The basic structure of a royalty is essentially um, there is an inventor of a drug and they license it to a partner who takes it to commercialization and eventual approval by the FDA. As a part of that, there is a license agreement. When that drug is commercial, uh, they generally owe a percentage of sales back to the original inventor, Mm -hmm. and that's what we call a royalty. Do you have an example that you can give us of where Bearings has partnered with a research institution or another party like that in this process? Last year, we had press released in June a transaction that we had completed with Boston Children's Hospital, Hmm. which is affiliated with Harvard's medical school. In the 90s, they had invented a drug which eventually became uh, Von Bendy. Uh, It's to treat uh, a rare genetic bleeding disorder called Von Willebrand's disease. Uh, They had licensed that out in the early 2000s to um, Baxter, which became Shire, which is now Takeda. Uh, That was approved recently in 2015. Mm -hmm. Boston Children's Hospital wanted to monetize. They wanted to pour money back into a lot of the pediatric medical research that they had going on. Mm-hmm. So in 2018, they had come to market through an investment bank uh, in a marketed process to try and monetize the royalty. Right. Um, we ended up winning that process. Um, but along the way, you know, there's a discussion between us and the university and working to figure out what is a structure that Uh, both helps the university achieve their goals of what they want to do with the funding, Mm -hmm. as well as help us achieve our structural goals and the types of returns we're looking to generate for our investors. I think the other thing that is interesting about that transaction, you know, we talk a lot about ESG at Bearings, the importance of um, being a thoughtful part of the community. 
as David said, the seller in this case had the choice to wait and collect royalty payments from Shire, now Takeda, mm-hmm. or they had the the chance to go to the market and pull forward those cash flows mm-hmm. to have a bigger impact right. today on their, their organization. And so we see in certain of these opportunities, the ability not just to deliver an attractive opportunity to our investors, but also to have a real impact yeah. at these academic institutions or research hospitals who need capital to drive their mission. Yeah, that's really interesting to see how that whole chain of events kind of works and that capital gets put back into the institutions themselves. So what does what that kind of life of cash flows look like for someone investing in this space? In terms of the life cycle of the product, generally patents last 20 years um, after it's filed and granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time, products will come to market with anywhere from 7 to 12 years of patent mm-hmm. uh, protection remaining. So what we look for is that long, predictable cash flow, mm-hmm. um, and that can entail either true patent protection. Um, we look for a minimum of five to seven years, uh, or it could also be regulatory exclusivity provided by the FDA, depending on what the product is. Mm-hmm. So for instance, the product that we uh, transacted with Boston Children's um, is a biologic and was granted 12 years of marketing exclusivity mm-hmm. by the FDA. Hmm. Importantly for investors in private markets, one of the things we're always focused on is vintage risk. And a big driver of vintage risk is what is the market environment like that you are exiting into at the end of a fund's life? In this case, these assets self-exit when the legal rights expire. And so we think not only from a return standpoint, but from a vintage risk standpoint, these types of investments can be really interesting as a diversifier two institutions that have a broad portfolio of private market investments. Got it. Got it. That's interesting. And and even within pharmaceutical royalties, when we think about uh, intellectual property as a diversifier to uh, an investor's portfolio, within pharma royalties, you can have diversification across therapeutic area, Mm -hmm. counterparty, length of cash flows that are tied to the legal or contractual obligation. And so, you know, you can have an asset that's in oncology versus an asset that's cardiovascular, Mm. which are insulated from each other because they're focused on a certain disease area. Right. I would imagine that there is a very involved underwriting process around each investment. Can we talk a little bit about what that actually looks like? When you're trying to understand and be able to predict these long cash flows, you need to perform fundamental asset diligence. So that involves speaking to physicians, patients, um, insurers, and payers, Mm. and getting a sense of how this product is going to grow and what that uptake looks like. Mm. Uh, Generally, we focus on products that are critical to patients. So they are meeting an actual severe unmet need. Um, They will be treating or potentially life-saving therapies. And... So it's not cosmetic drugs or anything like that. It is something that is... Right. We generally try to avoid revenues that are generated from essentially discretionary Mm -hmm. income, and it's kind of a a side quality of life Mm -hmm. um, issue. Uh, But the the critical piece there is we also focus on specialty areas. So being able to understand the market and predicting that market by talking to enough people that you can get a good sense. So... You know, in the past, we've had processes where we were able to speak to physicians that covered 10 to 15% of the full patient market. Hmm. And that gives you a good feel for how physicians are thinking about it. And then in addition, 
because we're focused on true unmet need, we do not focus on products where the sales are driven by pricing. Ah. So that has been a hot topic lately for us. You know, as long as there is fundamental need for the product and it's treating that Mm -hmm. disease, um, there will be a growing need. And, you know, we try to understand the dynamics of how that patient population is going to evolve. That makes a lot of sense. You talked about pricing kind of products that are driven by price. And yes, we have seen headlines around that. And I'm curious just around headline risk, but I'm curious about just risks more generally speaking. So what do you see as some of the bigger risks with investing in this space? And then I guess what steps do you take to mitigate those risks? There are three main risks. The first is uh, uptake of the product. Since we're generally looking at products that are um, early to mid life cycle of at least patent protection, they're usually in a growth period. Um, and the trade-off for that is you're seeking higher returns. So there is uptake risk and that's resolved or at least mitigated through the deep fundamental diligence that we do. And when it makes sense, we will partner with consultants and third-party experts within that specific disease area. Uh, the second is uh, intellectual property risk, which we also perform deep dives and will war game strategies with uh, IP counsel to understand what the risk is to that intellectual property of uh, someone potentially trying to infringe on it mm-hmm. or develop and work around the formulation of the drug. And then the third, as you mentioned, headline risk. Where we see a royalty being a part of the ecosystem is it is a passive investment. Uh, we generally do not have any influence on the pricing or marketing. And so we are trusting, and that's part of the diligence process as well, in the counterparty and the entity which is marketing, commercializing the product. So a lot of diligence happens around who that entity is Mm. and what their intentions are Mm -hmm. and how they've acted in the past, whether they're bad actors or good actors. Mm -hmm. And that factor is very strongly within our decision on targeting certain assets. I would add from a risk mitigation standpoint, Mm -hmm. we still believe there's no substitute for diversification. And so as, as David said earlier, We can diversify by clinical treatment area. We can diversify by where we are in the life cycle of the Mm -hmm. drug. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the ability to diversify by geography in which the cash flows are being generated. That's a big part of risk mitigation Mm -hmm. on the portfolio level that is really nice in this opportunity because we do think there's a lot of idiosyncratic factors related to each specific drug. So let's turn a minute to sourcing these assets, right? So we, we talked a little bit about um, the process that Bearings went through for Von Vendi with Boston Children's. And it sounds like, I don't know if you would describe that as a syndicated process or not, but it sounds like there was an investment bank involved. Is that the normal sort of process or how are you finding these opportunities to invest in? Maybe let's start with pharma, but I'd also be interested in talking more broadly about sourcing. Yeah. Within pharmaceutical royalties, we bucket into two paths. The first is, as you mentioned, external brokers, whether that's an investment bank bringing a marketed process to investors, um, or it could be a referral from consultants or lawyers that we work with who are experts in the royalty space. Uh, The other is proprietary sourcing. Within our network of relationships with both pharma companies and also tech transfer offices. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're members of the academic tech transfer organization that covers the U.S. and also globally. And those relationships, you know, take a while to generate. And you're working with uh, academic offices that some of them are not used to 
monetizing royalties and but they've seen the news, they've seen the types of benefits mm-hmm. it can deliver to an institution. Right. And so they're interested and it's working with them. And sometimes it can be a long process because technology takes time to develop. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these are, you know, long-term relationships that we're, we're developing and have developed and, uh, you know, through the proprietary sourcing and it's essentially a one-on-one negotiation, um, you're able to work more closely with the partner and design a structure essentially with a blank piece of paper mm. um, and figure out what works for both sides. Mm. Interesting. How about more broadly, John? I think more broadly, there's there's probably a lot of similarities across markets. In certain industries, there are different gatekeepers. So for example, in, in the music industry, if you want to buy music royalties, lawyers, talent agents are important gatekeepers who may control this process or really influence the decision about selling. And I would say there's differences between um, geographies and by transaction size as well. I think across markets, a lot of times we see smaller transactions, maybe even sub $75 million in certain places where there isn't the established investment banking channel. There may be a few boutiques, but there may not. In different geographies, there may be different levels of sophistication around transacting and assets. And so in those markets, you're going to have to do a lot more direct origination. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the great things about being a global platform like Bearings and having a local to local ability, given our presence in lots of countries, is to support those types of sourcing activities. Hmm. That's really interesting. So I guess as we kind of move towards the conclusion of this discussion, I want to take it back up a level and just look at the overall space again and just the types of return profile, I guess, that you could expect with some of these types of investments. And of course, we don't want to make any promissory statements or anything like that here. But what I'd like to do is just talk generally at sort of a uh, an overall level about what does a kind of risk return profile look like over time? Usually we think of private equity, we think J-curve type effect. Is that present in these types of assets or is it a different type of profile? It's a very good question. When we think about intellectual property and tangible assets, Broadly, it is a diverse investment universe. And within each class, there are different risk return attributes that you can target as an investor. Um, We look at all of those opportunities, but what we tend to see, and it's not just across intellectual property and intangibles, but we do see in the infrastructure space, we see it in certain natural resource investments, is that within the life cycle of an asset, there are certain places where there are value. Um, and we're really looking for that value to deliver good risk-adjusted returns. Time and time again, we tend to find that in the midlife part of the the life cycle of Mm -hmm. the asset, Um, and so we're generally looking for returns in the 12 to 15% range with a significant part of that return coming from cash yield across our portfolio. I think in, in the case of intellectual property assets, because in, in many cases they are expiring due to patent life or we may hold them um, for a very long time. The realization of capital gains tends to be less. And so you might expect even more of the return to come from the current cash yield or all of the return mm. in the case of something like a pharma royalty, if you held it for its life, to come from the, the cash yield on it. So as we take it back, I guess, to an investor perspective and we think, broadly about intangible assets. Um, I'd like to 
get sort of your main takeaway or message for folks who maybe are looking at this space or trying to get educated about the space? I'm interested either in your main takeaway or what you think is the biggest misconception about this space. And uh, can I start with you, John? I think the major misconception, um, and I, I think it's also the major opportunity for investors, is I don't see these opportunities as alternative. A lot of the return drivers that we're talking about are the most basic things that we're all using every day, whether it's streaming music, driving royalties to a music copyright, or taking a prescription drug that's driving the sales and thus the the royalty um, on a pharmaceutical patent. These are things that investors can understand, they can look at and really um, see the fundamentals in their day-to-day lives. And so while they live in the alternatives part of portfolio, I think they're quite traditional, core in many respects. And um, that misconception, I think, leads to value. And it's a big part of why we focused on these investments and have focused on them for the last 10 plus years. Yeah. So alternative income is a bit of a misnomer. It's an opportunity. Right. David, how about you? Regardless of where you think we are in the business cycle, being able to invest in intellectual property and intangible assets that provide you with solid cash flow and yield on assets that are uncorrelated to the broader market. So when you think about pharmaceutical demand, especially products that, um, as we mentioned, are treating an actual unmet need, Mm -hmm. when the S&P 500 drops, the demand for that treatment does not drop. Mm -hmm. People still need it to survive Mm -hmm. or or to live or to heal. Um, And to have that as a diversifying factor uh, helps regardless of where you're at in the business cycle as a diversifying part of your portfolio. Yeah, yeah. And I will say the name of this podcast is Streaming Income. And I think that point on seeking these income streams that are, maybe we won't call them alternative, but seeking these income streams that have the potential to deliver uncorrelated yield, et cetera, is potentially really quite valuable, especially given where we are in the cycle. But I guess I would argue that throughout the cycle as well. John, David, it's been uh, quite an educational discussion for me. I feel like I learned a few things and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from the team here at Bearings, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Bearings or find us on the web at bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Thanks again. 